In both our culture and in churches, there is a declining biblical literacy. Our knowledge of the scriptures is fading. Right? We know the scriptures less and less. We don't know our Bibles well. For example, this week, there was a special reading that President Obama gave during the 9-11 memorial, and there was a huge stir in our nation as we tried to figure out where did that reading come from? Was it a, a special poem that he had found? In fact, in the, on the internet, the search for Psalm 46, which is where the scripture he read came from, was one of the top searches this week as everyone tried to figure out where, where was that reading from? Was that from the scriptures that sounds vaguely familiar, right? By and large, the scriptures and knowledge of the scriptures and this, the Bible is sort of a fading memory of days gone by, of something from the past. And yet, there are still somehow some passages of scripture that have not been completely erased from our minds. Some things that, though our memory is a bit fuzzy, they're not altogether removed. Some passages that have still stood the test of time and, and have retained their place in our minds and our memory. For example, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me to still waters. There's still enough recognition that when you hear that, you know you're in the world of the scriptures. Matthew 6 and the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. You hear that and there's still enough memory collectively in our churches and in our culture for us to know that came from the scriptures. You might still see a sign for John 3.16 in the end zone during a football game. There's enough scripture, there's enough memory there for that to still be in mind. Well, when you come to the passage we're at today, you come to another one of those passages. When you get to Exodus 20, you're in another one of those passages that though our memory might be a bit fuzzy, it's not altogether removed. Because in Exodus 20, you come to the Ten Commandments. And again, though we may not know all there is to know, we know that there's something about it that still is relevant, still is pertinent, still is in the mind and memory of our culture and our churches. When you hear the Ten Commandments, what comes to mind for you? Maybe you think of a young Charlton Heston in the movie that, that had the same name, right? The movie that made him famous. If it was a few years ago, maybe you heard the controversy that was sort of brewing in our country as we figured out where the Ten Commandments belonged in our culture, in classrooms, in courtrooms. Was it okay to have a, a, a memorial or a token to these commandments? What place did it still have in our country, our culture, and our lives? Whatever the case, almost 3,400 years, three millennia has passed since it was originally given, and it has still stayed. It's had staying power. Three millennia later, it hasn't been erased from our memory. Many would agree that it's important. In fact, a recent poll suggested that nearly 80%, over 80% of Americans believe that the Ten Commandments were important for their lives. Think of that. Eight out of ten people thought that these ten words had some bearing, some relevance, some importance on their lives. And, and I would agree. I would think that if we polled us, at least eight of ten of us would think that these commandments have something to do with us. The poll went on to say that less than 1% knows all 10. And I would say that might be true for us as well. We, if we were honest, would say we know that these things are important. We're not entirely sure, though, what they are or how or what bearing they have on us. 
For most of us, the Ten Commandments are sort of like that distant relative that you know you're related to, but you're not really sure who they are or how the connection is. Right? If you came from a big family like I did, your dad was like one of six, your mom was like one of eight, that meant you had lots and lots of relatives. You had a big family with lots of aunts and lots of uncles and lots and lots of cousins. I remember during my wedding time, we would run into the same conversation over and over again every time we started talking about who to invite to the wedding. Because every week we'd run into another relative that we had to invite to the wedding. Every week the conversation went the same way. If you've been to Indian weddings, that's why they're so big, because you have to invite all your relatives. There's a billion of us, so there's a good chance if you're brown, we're related and you have to come to my wedding, right? <laughs> and so that's how it worked. At, uh, at my wedding, every week we'd have the same exact conversation, because dad would start and he'd go, oh, how can we not invite Uncle Roger to your wedding? And you're thinking, yeah, right, like you have someone named Roger in your family, right? <laughs> So the conversation was more like, oh, how could we not invite Uncle Thortakadavu to your wedding, right? <laughs> so now I go, Uncle who? Who is Thortakadavu, right? And then my dad would get very passionate and begin to explain the lineage. He would say, Uncle Thortakadavu, that is your mother's, father's, third brother's, second daughter's, fifth son's, second nephew. And you go, oh, okay, then of course he's family, he's got to come to the wedding, right? So you get to your wedding and there's about 40 people that you know and 560 Uncle Thortakadavos who you have no idea who they are. I'm not exaggerating, Shainu and I walked around at our wedding sort of going, is that guy your relative or is that guy my relative? We'd nudge each other and go, just shut up and smile and say, hi, uncle. And you did that, right? And, and to this day, we have family pictures where all the family is in one shot and we have no idea who these people are. We, we really think it's just random Indians who smelled the Indian buffet and just walked into the wedding and smiled for the picture. That's sort of what the Ten Commandments are like. You know they're related to you, you know there's some kind of connection, you're not really entirely sure how, and frankly, you're not all that convinced you want to find out. So what I want to do this morning is I want to try and reintroduce you to that distant relative and, and have us consider what bearing do these ten words, these ten commandments have on us? How are they connected? How do they relate? What are we supposed to learn from them? What are we supposed to walk away from them? And I want to suggest to you this, that obedience is the appropriate response of those who love God and have been saved by his grace. Let me say that again. Obedience is the appropriate response for those who love God and who have been saved by his grace. Okay, let's take a second and pray and ask God for his help, and then we'll consider this passage of scripture together. Our Lord, we seek you in this time and pause for a moment to say, come and help us. Help us to see your word more clearly, understand it more fully, believe it more deeply, apply it more truly, and let all of that result in your glory and our joy. We pray that in the name of the Son and in the power of the Spirit. Amen. 
Okay, last week, if you were here, you remember that we had finally arrived to Exodus 19. And in Exodus 19, God had gathered the freed people of Israel who were rescued out of slavery in Egypt, assembled them together at the base of Mount Sinai, and now they were about to meet with God. And if you remember last week, we said that it was in love that God drew this people to himself. He said, I've brought you to myself. I've carried you like an eagle on its wings. I love you. But we also saw that meeting God was quite an ordeal because he was a holy God. And so we saw the mountain shaking and the flashes of lightning exploding and the thunder booming and the trumpet blaring and the smoke billowing and the fire burning and the people's knees knocking because it was quite a deal to stand before God. He was loving and he was holy at the same time. And we remember from last week, Moses was sort of running back and forth between God and the people. He was communicating to God what the people wanted to say, communicating to the people what God wanted to say, and he kept going back and forth as a middleman telling both parties what the other was saying. But now, when you get to Exodus 20, verse 1, God is about to speak, and not just into the ear of Moses. He was going to speak for everyone to hear. And so this is a huge moment. Back in Exodus 3, you had this personal encounter with Moses and God, a small little bush on fire, God speaking to Moses. Now you have not just Moses, you have two million people. Now it's not a bush on fire, the whole mountain is on fire. Now it's not just Moses' ear that will hear, two million ears are about to hear what God is going to say. And so God speaks. What does he say? Look at 20 verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Stop there for a second. Why does it begin that way? Why does God begin that way? Why does he start with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? If you pause for a second, isn't that a bit peculiar for God to start this section. Isn't it a little odd for God to introduce himself to the people as they've gathered here? Think about it for a second. Here they are gathered by the Lord, to the Lord, to hear from the Lord. And the Lord starts by saying, I am the Lord, your God. And then he goes on to remind them of what he's done, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And you want to ask, what is that about? Here's why. If there's anyone who knows who it is that's about to address them, isn't it Israel? Because the Lord's the one who gathered them. The Lord's the one that's called them to himself. If there's anyone who knows what God's done for them, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, isn't it Israel? I mean, it's been hardly three months since that whole exodus, since the plagues and walking through the sea, and now they've been brought here. Isn't it, if there's anyone who knows who God is and what he's done, isn't it Israel? We've read enough to know that Israel's not the brightest bunch, but really, can they be that forgetful as though now they meet with God, the mountain's exploding, the trumpets are blaring, and God has to say, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's a bit odd. For God to start that way, to introduce himself here, that would be like Jensen walking in from home at the end of a day, calling Julia to himself, and then saying, I am Jensen Abraham, your father, who brought you into this world. (laughs) Julia would run to Shilu, tug on her, and say, something's off with dad, right? (laughs) 
Because what is that about? Why would the Lord gather this people to himself and introduce himself? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What's going on there? Here's what's happening. What we need to do is take a step back for a second and understand the background, the culture of that day, the context that we're in. If you remember back to last week in chapter 19, we heard that God was about to do something on this mountain. From chapter 19 all the way to 24, he was about to enter into this unique relationship with the people. Back in 19 verse 5, if you remember or you look, it says, If you obey me and keep my covenant... Then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation to me. And so what God's about to do in this section, he's he's about to enter into this unique relationship with his people. a, A relationship he doesn't share with any of the other nations or peoples on the planet. He's about to enter into a relationship with Israel like no one else. And that relationship in the ancient world, in the culture of Exodus 20, was called a covenant. He was about to enter into a covenant with Israel. And in that day and in that world, a covenant was formalized through a covenant treaty or a covenant document. A covenant wasn't just something that came from the Bible. It was present all over the place in the ancient world. You had nations coming together in covenant. We have examples of the Hittite people and the covenants that they drew up and entered into with other nations. And we have examples of the covenant documents or covenant treaties that they wrote to formalize this relationship. How did that work? How did, how did two nations come into this incredible, unique relationship called a covenant? How did that get arranged? Here's how. What you would have in the ancient world is you had this strong, superior, powerful kingdom. It was called the suzerain king. And that king would come into relationship, and that kingdom would come into relationship with this poor, needy, weak kingdom. That was called the vassal. So you had this suzerain-vassal relationship. Just know that for if you read commentaries, you can know what they're talking about. Basically, you had this great kingdom, strong, powerful that would come alongside and help and aid this weaker, poorer, needy kingdom and provide what this weaker kingdom so desperately needed. And the two would get into this relationship. They would come into this arrangement and form this covenant or this treaty. And so the great king or the strong kingdom would provide protection, deliverance, aid, provide for them, do everything that this weaker kingdom so desperately needed. And the weaker kingdom, in response, would pledge their loyalty, their obedience, their exclusive relationship with this great king. If you picture sort of like the mafia, you have the the boss or the don who comes and promises his protection, and in exchange, you will be loyal to and obey this great ruler. And that's the relationship that they forged. It was this covenant between the two. And this covenant, this relationship between the two was forged, was sealed with a covenant document, a covenant treaty. What did those documents look like? Well, here's what it contained. Usually, it began with a formal introduction. And so the great king, we'll call him Thortakadavu, the great king would say, I am King Thortakadavu, your master and ruler. And it would begin with that introduction. From there, this document would go on to recount 
the nature of this relationship and why the weaker kingdom was so obligated to the great king. And so it would say something like, I am Thortakarvo, your great king and master, who rescued you when you were in trouble or fed you when you were hungry or delivered you when you were sick and begin to recount the different things that the great king had done that obligated the loyalty and service of this weaker king. After the formal introduction and the recounting of what was done, these treaties would then go on to list a number of commands and prohibitions of what the weaker king and kingdom was to do and not do in response to all that the great king had done. So you'd move from introduction to recounting what would happen to here's a list of do's and don'ts if this relationship is going to remain intact. When you gave these commands and these prohibitions, after all of that was done, came this section of promises of blessing if you stayed with the covenant and promises of curses if you disobeyed the covenant. So the great king would say to this weaker kingdom, if you obey the terms of this agreement, this treaty we're about to enter into, we will always protect you. We will always come to your defense. We will always come to your aid. If you break allegiance, if you ever betray us, if you ever align with another kingdom against us, we will come with all our wrath and all our fury, and we will not stop till we slaughter you. And so you had this section of both blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And when all the details were settled, the introduction, the recounting, the commands and prohibitions, the promises of blessing, the threats of curse, all of it was then engraved in stone because it was going to be permanent. It was a reminder. And we, we have our own saying, something's written in stone. That means for us it's permanent. It was a permanent reminder of the relationship these two kingdoms had come into and that nothing could break it. In fact, breaking it would be like breaking stone. It would be destroyed forever. When you get that background, then you come back to Exodus 20 and you go, what is God doing here? Do you see what God's doing? God is entering into a relationship with Israel in a culture and in a context that they would understand, and God's showing them what kind of relationship he wants to have with them. And he's doing it in the very means of their own day so that they would get what they're about to enter into. Right? For example, if you're seated and a minister stands at the front and says, Dearly beloved, we are gathered, immediately you know you're sitting in a church at a wedding. Right? You, you know enough of that introduction to know immediately where you are. If you're seated and someone stands up and says, All rise, the honorable, you immediately know where you are. You're sitting in a courtroom. You're about to watch a legal proceeding. In the same way, when Israel heard God say, I am the Lord your God, and then heard what God did, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and then heard the list of do's and don'ts, you shall not have any other gods, and then saw all of that etched into stone permanent, they immediately knew where they were and what was happening. God was about to draw them into a special relationship. You see, in Exodus 20, God's not so much starting a new religion like he is establishing a kingdom. And, uh, and that's what he says, I'm going to make you a holy nation. God's not just starting a religion in Exodus 20. God's launching a new relationship. In fact, this is what the war with Pharaoh was all about. Pharaoh wanted to be their king. 
so that their worship and their service and their allegiance and their obligations were to him. And God goes to war with him to say, no, they belong to me. They're mine. I am their king. They are my treasured possession. They do not belong to you. Now, why is that important? Here's why. Because you come to the Ten Commandments and you think that this whole thing is a list of do's and don'ts and nothing more. You come to the Ten Commandments and you think this whole thing is about religion and you come to discover it's really about relationship. Maybe you've heard that before, that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Maybe it's overused, maybe it's trite, it's true. When you come to the Ten Commandments, the first thing that you discover is that God is interested in a relationship with these people. It is not that the Ten Commandments start with a list of do's and don'ts. It starts with God bringing this people to himself and entering into a unique and special relationship. What you have is not an angry God in the sky waving his finger with a bunch of do's and don'ts to ruin your life and spoil your fun. What you have is a loving God who is holy and bringing to himself an unholy people and saying, I want to be related to you like no one else on the planet. I want to enter into a relationship with you like I share with no one else. And that God is the same one who offers the same thing to us through Jesus Christ. Isn't this why Jesus came to do what? Establish a new covenant where God would come into relation not with an ethnic people called Israel, but with an international people, a global people, with anybody from every tribe and every language and every creed that would come to Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus offers a new covenant, because God is interested in a real and personal relationship with us. Would you let your mind be staggered at the thought that the Almighty God, before whom the mountains shake, wants to be in a unique and personal relationship with you. That it's over you that God wants to speak. You are my treasured possession. You belong to me. I am the great king over all kings. And you, my subjects. We come to the Ten Commandments thinking it's about religion. We find out it's about relationship. That's why God begins, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He's forging a covenant. But there's a second reason why he begins that way as well. If the first thing we discover is that we come to these Ten Commandments thinking it's about religion, to discover it's about relationship, the second thing that we learn is this, that we are reminded by these Ten Commandments that we're saved by grace and not by works. Hear that again. These Ten Commandments remind us that we are saved by grace and not by works. The oldest lie in human history is that if you are good enough, you will get to God. And that is a lie that God has been working to undo from the beginning of creation. The oldest lie in human history is that if you do enough, you'll get to God. You see, you and I, when we think of the Ten Commandments, we start in verse 3. We start with, you shall have no other gods before me. That is not how the Ten Commandments begin, and you've heard that before. That's not where God starts. And where we start and where God starts makes a world of difference. We start with what they, we need to do and not do. God starts with what he's already done. 
You and I assume that if we're going to come into this kind of a covenant, unique, special relationship with God, if God's going to have a personal relationship with me, if God's really going to be intimately involved with my life, we think that we've got to perform at a certain level to get God to notice us. We've got to do these things or not do these things to somehow get him to be with us. We think that if we do enough good stuff, say enough prayers, eat enough vegetables, take our vitamins, go to church, do these commandments, then... God will work, God will love, God will accept, God will save. And that's not how the Ten Commandments begin. Where we start with performance, God starts with grace. Where we start with law, God starts with good news, which is called the gospel. Right? Maybe if you've been at Seven Mile Road long enough, you've heard this in your head. I'm still telling you, there's places of your heart that don't believe it. You know it in your head, but in your heart... Do you really believe that this relationship with God is not based on what you do and don't do? Do you really believe in your heart that on your best day and on your worst day, God is no more far or close than he is on this day? He has pledged his love to you and it did not come through your performance. Because the Ten Commandments don't start with law, it starts with grace and gospel. I've said this before. I've often thought if we were writing the book of Exodus, if we were narrating these events, do you know where we would have put Exodus 20? We would have put it way back at the beginning at sort of Exodus 2. And we would have read in Exodus 1 that there was a slaved people who were trapped and helpless. We would have found out that they were worshiping the same false gods of Egypt. They were neck deep in sin themselves. And we would have thought if God is going to rescue them, well, then here's what they have to do and not do. Here's the Ten Commandments. Here it is in chapter 2. If you do well at this, then maybe I'll think about getting involved in your life. Maybe then I'll bless you and make you my own. And that's why Exodus 20 comes at Exodus 20 and not chapter 2. Because why did God save them and deliver them? Not because they were obedient. Not because they were holy. He rescued them and saved them and delivered them while they were still unholy and sinful and disobedient. He makes them his own, not because they are holy, but to make them holy. He makes them his own, not because they are obedient, but so that they might learn to obey. He frees them and then calls them to the law. The very first words of the Ten Commandments are not law. They are gospel, good news. Israel, before you did anything, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. We think the first word about our relationship with God is what man must do. And God says the first word is what I have already done. This is not about your performance. This is about what I have already accomplished. And so God begins by declaring, you're going to be saved by grace, not through your own works, not because you deserved it, not because you merited it, but because I am gracious and good. This is why the New Testament will say, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, so no one can boast. This is why Romans will say, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the very first words of the Ten Commandments remind us we are saved 
by grace alone. Israel gets out not because they're good, but because God is good. Not because of what they've done, but because of what God has done. And if any are to become right with God now, it will not be because of what you do, but what Jesus did for you. Jesus dies in your place for your sins so that all who repent and trust in him are made right with God because of his action and not your own. We come to the Ten Commandments, and the first thing that we think is that this is about religion. We discover it's about relationship. We come to the Ten Commandments, and we think this thing is about law, and we discover it's first about grace. So then here's the question. How do you respond? If this is true, what are you supposed to do for this God? What are you supposed to do to a God or do for a God who has already done all this for you? How do you respond? How do you, how do you tell this God gratitude? How do you express to this God love? When I didn't do anything, you saved me. When I didn't deserve it, you rescued me. You brought me into relationship through no work of my own. How are we to respond? And that's where verses 3 through 17 come in. If you're asking the good question, which is, how do I respond to a God who has saved me not by works but by grace and brought me to not religion but to a relationship, verse 3 through 17 tell you exactly how to respond. You want to know what you do for and to a God like this? You respond by having no other gods but the Lord. You respond by not trading the image of the invisible God for created things and bowing down to them as though they were gods. You respond by not letting God's name come on your lips as though that name meant nothing, emptying of its worth and value. But when you speak of that name, you remember all that name did for you, and you do not take it in vain. You respond by working hard on six days and setting apart a day to remember him to rest in his finished work, trusting that it will not be your work that gets all things done, but resting in his finished work. You respond by honoring the authorities God has put in your life, mother and father, obeying them as children, honoring them as adults. You respond by not committing adultery and not murdering and not stealing and not telling falsehoods to save your skin and not coveting what is not yours. You see, the Ten Commandments are not what we do to gain God's acceptance. It's what we do in response to a God who has already accepted us. The Ten Commandments are not this labor to drag your feet through, to somehow please the one above. It is what you do to a God who is already pleased with you. It's a gesture of love. This is why the New Testament will say, if you love God, keep his commandments. It's an expression of love for a God who has already rescued you through no merit of your own. That's why we want to say again, obedience is the appropriate response of those who love God and who have been saved by his grace. Not labor, not compulsion, but an expression of love to a God who has already saved you. And I need you to hear this. When you think of the Ten Commandments, these laws were not given to restrict you, to confine you, to ruin your joy and spoil your fun. God is not sitting in heaven seeing you smile and go, we need to do something about that. Give him a command to stop that because I don't like laughing in my kingdom. 
right? You have to think, what is your view of who God is? What do you think his nature is? Because you come to these commandments, and even if you're to do them as an expression of love, you still see them as somehow squeezing every bit of joy out of your life, robbing the pleasure that you would otherwise want and have. And hear this. God did not give these commands to ruin your life or spoil your fun. God gave these commands to lead you into fullness of joy and life abundant. I have few things in my life that have taught me about who God is than now being a husband and a father. And those two things, those two relationships have taught me so much about what God is like. When I tell my daughter, three years old, when I say, Hannah, don't do this, do that, it is not because I am out to ruin her joy or spoil her fun. There is no one on the planet more committed to her happiness, to her joy, than I am. Do you hear that? No one on the planet who is more delighted to see her laugh than me. No one more committed to spending all my resources to making her life abundant and full of joy. But I am wiser than her, smarter than her, bigger than her. I know the paths that will lead her to life. And I know the paths that will lead her to death. And I know she thinks she knows better. I know she will grow up looking at me as though I'm a mean ogre, bigger than her, who's always ruining her fun, who's always telling her what to do and not to do, when the reality is, I want joy for her. But I know the things that will lead her to life, and I know the things that will lead her to death. I am more than anyone for the fullness of joy in her life. And my commands to her are not to weigh her down, to oppress her or to ruin her life. It's so that she might have fullness of joy and fullness of life. God is more committed to your joy than you are. You look at him like he's an ogre in the sky, ruining your fun when he is telling you, my son, my daughter, here are the paths to life. And you think this is your joy and it will lead you to death. And what I tell you to do and what I tell you not to do is for your good, is for the fullness of joy. That's what these commands are. These commands are my father saying to me, Ajay, listen to me. The fullness of life comes not from having a mouth that always speaks lies. I'm telling you, your life will not be better, you think it will, by constantly telling falsehoods and having to tell more falsehoods till the whole thing is this web of deceit and you have the burden of trying to keep all that up. I'm telling you, Jay, fullness of life comes from being truthful. Speak true words. Jay, I'm telling you, fullness of life does not come from taking life when you're angry or violent or out of convenience. I'm telling you, fullness of joy comes from preserving life. So do not murder, do not kill. The fullness of joy comes from helping life. Ajay, fullness of joy does not come in grabbing what's not yours. Fullness of joy does not come from constantly looking over to your neighbor's stuff and wishing I had that. I'm telling you, Ajay, your life will not be happier if you are constantly looking and going, I want that, I wish I had that, I wish I had that wife, I wish I had that car, I wish I had that thing. Your life will not be more happy by coveting. And so I'm telling you, Ajay, don't covet. I'm telling you, fullness of joy will come when you are content and satisfied knowing that I've given you Jesus Christ. I did not spare his blood for you. Then why would I spare anything that you need? Your life will be happier if you're content. Ajay, I'm telling you, fullness of joy will not come 
by, by taking my name as though it means nothing. But you remember the relationship we're in, and so when you speak my name, speak of it like you would speak of someone dear to you. You wouldn't drag the name of someone you love through the mud, nor should you take my name in vain. Ajay, I'm telling you, fullness of joy comes in being faithful to one woman for 60 years until she buries you or you bury her, rather than trading all of that up for one night that flees in a moment and leaves your family, your children, your life, your ministry destroyed by the morning. I did not tell you do not commit adultery to ruin your fun. I told you because I'm telling you life is better this way. You could go through every one. And here's what I'm trying to get you to see. Did God give these things to restrict you and, refine and close you up? Or does life work right this way? And God is trying to lead you into greater joy. So that when you come to temptation, it really is a question of do you trust God? Do you trust him that obedience in this path will lead me to life even though at that moment it doesn't feel like it even though everything in my mind body life tells me this is what i want god is telling you i know the paths of life in my presence there is fullness of joy forever and i'm telling you walk in this way we thought the ten commandments were about religion we discover it's about relationship we thought they were about law first we discover it's about grace first we thought they were joyless, life-sucking obligations. We discover they are expressions of love that lead us into fullness of joy and life. So how do you leave from this place? Maybe if, if God's spirit is working, you actually see Exodus 20 different. Maybe you see relationship rather than religion. Maybe you actually, by his grace, see grace rather than law. Maybe you even see this as expressions of love and joyful, full life rather than obligations to drag your feet through. So how do I want you to leave? I don't want you to leave going, okay, that's it. From today on, I am doing the Ten Commandments. I am keeping every one of these laws. I get it. I get it, Ajay. I'm going to leave this place and I'm going to keep the commandments. How long will you last? Maybe to the parking lot, right? Because then you'll see someone getting into that sweet ride and you're driving a Chevy Aveo and so you're going, shoot, I coveted already, right? <laughs> you're going to maybe make it to the parking lot. Why? You've got a problem. You can't keep the commandments. You're not very good at obeying God. You're not very good at keeping his law. But I have very good news for you. And the good news is this. God knew you couldn't keep the law. In fact, one of the reasons God gave the law was to show you how helpless you were and to cause you to go, I need someone to help me. What, what your heart is saying is, I need a savior. I need someone to rescue me from how bad I am at this whole thing. And the reality is no one keeps the law except one. Jesus, God in the flesh, came to the earth and kept the law perfectly. Why is that good news for you? I'll tell you. Hang with me for a second. Jesus kept the law perfectly. The only God came in flesh to man to keep the law perfectly. And do you know what Jesus did? He aced this whole thing. Every single one. Satan comes to him and says, listen, bow down to me for a second. And you don't have to go through the cross. You don't have to do anything. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus says, 
Worship the Lord your God and serve no other. Jesus never traded the image of invisible God for some created thing and bowed down to a bird as though it was God or some lesser creature thinking it was creator. He never traded the image of God for even an idol. He never spoke the name of God irreverently, but when Yahweh or Abba came on his lips, it was with great reverence. He kept the Sabbath for six days. He worked harder than all the others, and every seventh he rested, trusting in God. He honored his parents, obeying them as a boy, honoring them as an adult. So even on the cross, what do you see? Him honor his mother. Even in his dying breaths, he says to one of his friends, you now become my mother's son. You got to watch for her. I, I can't anymore. Jesus never came to take life. Even when it would have been convenient, he could have struck down all his enemies. And yet he works harder than everyone else to preserve life. There's a story of a, a sinful woman caught in adultery. A mob of men are after her with rocks in their hand. And Jesus stands up against that whole mob to rescue her life. In fact, Jesus was the kind who would rather be killed than kill. He never made a woman feel uncomfortable. No woman would ever look at him and feel his eyes leering over her body. In fact, every woman that came to Jesus was safe. He wasn't an old man. He was 30, and yet he was the kind of young man that a woman could run to and feel completely safe because he was going to treat her like his sister. Adultery was the furthest thing from Jesus. He never spoke a dishonest word, not even to save his own skin, but at all times spoke truth, so much so that the scriptures say he is the truth, the way and the life. He never took what wasn't his. In fact, he had come to give till he had nothing left to give and taught his disciples it is more blessed to give than to receive. He was never out to steal what was not his, but rather to give till he was emptied of nothing left to give. And he never looked on lust with someone else's stuff. He was so content with what God had assigned him, he knew who God was and that God was not stingy and holding out on him and that his life wouldn't be better if he could have just one more trinket or toy. But rather he was content, never coveting what his neighbor owned because he knew who God was. And if he had God and what God gave him, he had enough. Jesus was perfect. Now, why is that good news for you? Maybe you're going, okay, so why, why, does that, why is that good news? He aced the test. I failed the test. Why is that good news? The good news is because when Jesus dies on the cross, he not only takes your sin, he gives you his righteousness. You see, that's why we worship Jesus, not just for his death, but for his perfect life. That's why it wouldn't have been enough for Jesus to just die as a baby, get wiped out by Herod, and our sins be forgiven. We needed him to live out a full and perfect life because we needed that righteousness credited to us. Jesus kept every law for 33 years so that the mass of his perfect life could be given to us. On the cross, you see the wonderful transaction is not just that Jesus takes your sin, he gives you his righteousness. It's that God, God not only forgives your every breaking of the law, but credits you for his every keeping of it. You who have trusted in Christ, who repent of your sins and come to Jesus, your sins are forgiven. 
and you receive the righteousness that you could have never earned through your own life through Jesus Christ. Before this service, I was praying with Kurt, and he prayed this simple thing that opened my eyes. God fulfills both sides of the obligations of this covenant. Can you imagine what kind of God we have? We have the great king who says, this is what I require. And then comes on the other side and says, and I'll fulfill it for you. What kind of God fulfills the obligations of both parties and says, I'll be faithful and I'll promise my blessings. You just have to be obedient. And when we're disobedient, says, and I'll come and be obedient for you and still bless you. And I'll take the curses for you. He takes the punishment for our unfulfilling of the covenant and grants us the blessing for fulfilling it. Jesus does everything God requires and gives that righteousness to us and takes from us all of our failings. He gives us the A's and takes our F's and we're considered righteous in Jesus Christ. This is the wonder of the good news of Christianity. It's that you could have never done enough, but Jesus has done everything for you. And if you will repent of your sins and trust in him as Lord and only Lord above all gods and worship no other, he's yours and all of this is for you. We come to the Ten Commandments. We think it's about religion. We find out it's about relationship. We think it's about law. We find out it's first about grace. We think it's a joyless obligation. We find out it's paths of life and fullness of joy. And we discover that obedience is the appropriate response for those who love God and who have been saved by his grace. So then if all of that is true and with all that in mind, would you hear this one last time? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not use the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet. Let's pray. Father, our hearts rejoice in Jesus. Our hearts despair of ourselves. If by your spirit you would awaken us to this truth, then today, maybe for the first time, we would believe we're not as good as we think we are. We're certainly not as good as you require us to be. And no man can earn relationship with God through himself. No one has kept the law of God enough. No one has been good enough, clean enough, right enough. And yet there is hope for lawbreakers like us that if we confess that we are lawbreakers and look to Jesus as the only law keeper and repent and trust in him, then all his righteousness is given to us and he takes all our sins away. And when that happens, we want to respond by living as you've called us to live knowing that it will bring you glory and it truly will lead us to fullness of life. We ask now, even, the whole, even now, for the Holy Spirit of God to come and work in our hearts and convince us of these truths. If we have not lived them, believe them, today is the day of salvation, the scriptures say, so that we might freshly believe in you. Cause us to do this now and move in our time, even from here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.